Uh, we have been in a series on the book of Acts. It is kind of a happenstance series. We, we really haven't intended to do it, but it's been fitting. Uh, we ended the Apostles' Creed series. That was, a, that was a series that taught us what the fundamental elements of the Christian faith are. That's what we recited earlier as part of our worship. And so after that series, we <clears throat> were led into a time in the church called Ascension Tide, that is the, uh, the ascension of Christ into the heavenlies, demonstrating that not only was he the Son of God by God raising him from the dead, but also he had conquered every uh, opponent of mankind, both sin, Satan, sickness, and finally in a, in a really, uh, if you look at it in a cosmic way, that Jesus had had also defeated the elementary things of this world. That is, he was, uh, through his miracles, demonstrating over and over again that he was God above physical matter, and that's also another effect of ascension. And so after ascension, there was Pentecost, and then because we're going to do this VBS in the next few months, uh, or in the next month, rather, we thought it fitting to... Uh, discuss some of the, the ways in which scripture demonstrates how a church is built. And churches are built by missional activity. And we've been focusing over and over again in the book of Acts how Acts is the narrative or the story, the, the historical story of the fulfillment of Jesus's prophecy in Acts 1.8. He said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, or the utmost part of the earth. That is, the, wit the Christians would witness in Jerusalem. We saw how that took place, and then when Stephen's killed, they're persecuted and sent out, and then they go into Judea and into Samaria. The Holy Spirit comes upon the Samaritans first, and then those who are even further away than Samaria, further demonstrating over and over. It's like, um, if you know the idea of concurrent circles, that is, circles with the same center, um, Jerusalem, Judea, utmost parts of the earth. It's an ever-expanding uh, effect that, that the gospel is having. And so uh, we come to this chapter in which we pick up, we had seen a few weeks ago, Saul had seen Jesus on the road to Damascus, and there were, was a vision that Saul had, and then uh, Ananias had a vision in which he comes and prays for Saul. And then we saw the parallel the next week of Peter having a vision and Cornelius also having a vision in which he asks Paul, uh, Peter to come and to pray for them. And likewise, we see another chapter in which this theme of light and darkness is being re-emphasized, it's being repeated. The language of Scripture, if we are to come to appreciate it and to have our desire in it, uh, that is, you know, the, the fulfillment of Psalm 119, that I, the law of the Lord is enlightening, I desire His precepts, I cherish His Word, etc., etc. If you were to do that, one of the ways you have to do that is to appreciate the, the Scripture for its literature and the the beauty in the narrative. And so we've seen this idea. Saul is meets Christ on the road to Damascus and he's blinded. He was blind in the spiritual because he didn't see Christ. And then he sees Christ seeing in the spiritual. He's struck and struck with blindness in the natural. 
And then Peter doesn't see what God is doing in bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. He's blind, if you will, to the purposes of God on the earth at that time. And then this chapter, again, we see another blindness come. And there's actually in this chapter two blindnesses. But one of the things that we have to uh, appreciate is the way in which Scripture presents itself. And if you come, it's my opinion, if you come to be able to read scripture and to hold memories of other chapters uh, in your mind, you will be empowered to see beauty. And the Holy Spirit will speak to you in a more significant way while you're reading if you see the dots connecting from chapter to chapter. I, I, um, I don't have as strong of a, a personal Bible reading plan as I would like. I don't think any Christian could ever say they do. Maybe a few people could. But I think we do ourselves a great disservice when we read a chapter here and a chapter there every other day. And there's no way in our minds to keep the memories going. Now, over years, you'll build some connections. But if you never take the time to read a book the whole way through in one setting, you're going to miss stuff. And you're going to miss... Uh, hopefully what you'll see today, um, or you won't miss that, but these are the kinds of things you may miss. So in this chapter, we're going to see four things. One is uh, what we do in seeking the Lord, how we are to go about our missional activity and its beginnings. We're going to look at the apostolic judgment that comes at the hand of Paul. We're also going to look at what Paul preaches as we've been focusing on the last few weeks, the apostolic gospel and its elements of a history-informed gospel, a warning of judgment, the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, and a call to repentance. Those four, at least those four elements. And so, finally, we're going to look at how this chapter is the pivotal chapter in the book of Acts, transitioning from the focus on the Jews to a focus on the Gentiles. So, uh, in the midst of seeking the Lord at the beginning of this chapter, Saul and Barnabas and um, a few other people are worshiping the Lord and they're fasting. And the Holy Spirit instructs Barnabas and Saul to begin their missionary activities. Now, one of the things that is, um, if you're a student of the word, if you remember Saul and David, we noticed how Saul disobeyed partly. And so um, we also have a notion that delayed obedience is disobedience. That is, if you tell God, I'm going to put this off and put this off, uh, you're actually disobeying God. But there's an interesting thing that happens here. After the Holy Spirit, by prophecy, speaks and says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, it says in verse 3, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them. So who is they and who laid their hands on, who's the them and who's the they? Well, the they is the other apostles who were in this city where Paul and and uh Oh, Saul and Barnabas were, were praying and worshiping and fasting. And so while we hear a word from the Lord, it's often the case that we want to rush out and start doing stuff. And it's not the case that that's the right decision every time. In fact, if this is any pattern or indication of what God desires, when you hear a word from the Lord concerning, I'm, I should do this, I should do the, that, or somewhat, or better yet, the church your brothers and sisters in Christ comes and says to you, while you're all fasting and praying together, we feel like the Lord is sending you to a city or a people group or whatever. At that point, you then begin to seek the face of God. It is not after you hear direction that you just start to, you know, 
obey as if you could obey with full knowledge of what God desires. It's actually the case that it is wise when God gives you a direction that you fast and pray and you seek after him. After they had birthed Saul and Barnabas in prayer, they then laid their hands on them, they being the uh, other believers and the other apostles, and then them being Saul and Barnabas. And so Saul and Barnabas are anointed. We've seen what happens through the laying on of hands with Stephen and with Philip. After their after the apostles lay hands on uh, a deacon, or, or in this case, a new missionary, a new va- evangelist, they begin to do signs and wonders. Now, um, this isn't the first time that Saul and Barnabas had been prayed for with the laying on of hands, but it is certainly the designation that they are now for the work of the ministry. That, that is their purpose. That is Saul and Barnabas's uh, identity from now on. And so, First, the Holy Spirit speaks. They don't move right away. They keep seeking him. They hear instructions. They fast. They pray again before they're anointed to go and do ministry. And then second, the the most important thing that this indicates, in verse 4, it says, I don't have it on the slide, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went to Seleucia. Now, in verse 3, it says uh, that the disciples... Then after fasting and praying, they, the the other apostles, the disciples, they sent them off. And in verse 4, I don't have it on the slide, it says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works through the agency, the institution of the church. There are churches which are not filled with the Holy Spirit. In the book of Revelation, they describe those types of churches as being, if you will, synagogues of Satan. That is, there are, there are people groups, there are churches who form and, and have an external form, they have a church building, they may even have Sunday services, but they are not at all about promulgating the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've gone off into other distractions, other heresies, uh, affirming things that the word of God tells them plainly to, to war against. But... Even though those exist, that does not negate the fact that there are true, authentic churches through which the Holy Spirit moves and leads his people. And so, the second thing that this points out is that the the sending of the apostles, unified in prayer and fasting, is the sending of the Holy Spirit. That is, your desire to do missional activity, or, or if you hear a word from the Lord saying you should go to this people group, or you should begin to have a Bible study at a campus, if that is confirmed by prophecy and the word of the Holy Spirit and does not negate other scripture, that is the Holy Spirit shoving you out the door and sending you. And so, just as in the past, God identified himself with, the midst, uh, with, the, with his people in their persecution, he now also identifies himself with the apostles' instruction and activities. And that's important for what we're going to talk about later on in this chapter. That idea that God is acting when the apostles agreeing with God are acting, not apostles acting on their own. So there's a judgment that comes after Saul and Barnabas, they go to this city um, called Antioch. Um, well, they, they don't get to Antioch yet, but when, we, when they get to Antioch, it's not the Antioch that they just left, so don't trip over that. Uh, but this, this guy, uh, Bar-Jesus, um, 
his, his name is actually Elmas. I'm going to call it Elmas. I don't know how to pronounce his name, but Elmas is attempting to turn the leaders of Cyprus away from the faith. It says that in verse 8, uh, Elmas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, they're connecting it with earlier verse 6, that Simon uh, Bar-Jesus, uh, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Now, what's a proconsul? Well, in our city, city of Dayton, we have a mayor uh council, is it mayor council system? There's a mayor and there's four other men or women who are the council. And together they make uh, five people by which the city is administered and, and things are, are done. Uh, rules are passed, uh, money is appropriated. That is what a pro-council is, basically. There's one guy and he's basically the, the preeminent counselor among some other counselors, and he has some buddies to help him. So in this verse, in verse 8, the council is hearing from, uh, from Paul and, and, and Barnabas. They're hearing the gospel, and there's this Jewish magician who is opposing them, attempting to turn them away from the faith. And look at what happens. Saul, and then here's the transition point in the book. Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. It's often the case that um, many of us believe that when Saul changed, when his name is changed from Saul to Paul, many of us think that's because he got converted, right? Well, that's actually not very accurate, and it's not helpful to understand the rest of the book. It's the practice among the Jews at this time that they would have one name in their culture. That is, um, you know, let's say their name was Jim. And then in, in the world, that is with the Gentiles, they might be called another name that means somewhat similar to their name uh, in Hebrew, but it's different. And they did this for cultural reasons, but it also has uh, a wonderful identification element to it. This guy, Saul, who is among the Gentiles, that's his name. Or among the Jews, his name is Saul. But among the Gentiles, his name is Paul. After this verse, the uh, writer uh, of Acts, Luke, the physician, never refers to Paul again as Saul. He only refers to him as Paul. And this is a way of, of demonstrating from a narrative point of view the, the focus of the book of Acts is now going to be about the gospel going to the Gentiles and the Jews have, have missed their opportunity. Paul, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. Now, when it says Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit, this is not just describing the specific designation that all believers are filled with the Holy Spirit. This is saying that Paul is, is uniquely anointed in this moment to sit on a seat of judgment and, and demonstrate the opposition that God brings to those who oppose his gospel. And Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit and then looks intently at him. We've seen that phrase before in, in uh, Peter and John when they look intently at the man who is sitting at Solomon's portico. They look intently at him and tell him to rise up and walk. We can see through this phrase that there is a miracle that is about to happen. And later on in the next chapter, this exact same phrase is used. It is a phrase to designate that this is a miracle. This is an apostolic judgment. He looks intently at him and says, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? This phrase, the straight paths of the Lord, is a way to identify the gospel that came through John the Baptist, that is, prepare the way of the Lord, which Paul is going to later reference. 
And so these phrases, they're foreshadowing. And so this foreshadowing of this phrase, when Paul looked intently at Elmas, it is, is about to identify what's going to happen. It says in verse 11, and now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. Again, we've been seeing over and over again, when the apostles act, it is God acting. When the apostles filled with the Holy Spirit be, uh, act in a certain way, God is doing this. Paul is pronouncing the judgment of blindness on Elmas, but it is the case that Paul says the Lord's hand is upon you. Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Remember, this is a theme of blindness and then vision. Not being able to see Christ, seeing Christ. Over and over again. And so Elmas is stricken with blindness. It says, immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And what's the effect of this? Then the proconsul believed when he saw that what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. That is the effect of apostolic judgment on a person or a culture. So this, uh, this account foreshadows the turning of the book of Acts from the, the lost sheep of Israel to the lost sheep in the nations. And um, again, this is another identification that Paul is an apostle, both of what we're going to see him preach in a few minutes, uh, but also this this brings to mind Peter's behavior, or Peter's actions, rather, when Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit. Now, again, this idea, the apostles and God acting together, uh, rightly understood the acts of the apostles is not just the acts of the apostles, but it is the acts of Jesus ascended, glorified, and reigning through his church. And so when Peter is lied to by Ananias and Sapphira, Peter says to them, why did you think you could lie to the Holy Spirit? Okay, so this is a pattern that's building in the book. So when the apostles do something very important at the last part of this chapter, we know that God is doing something very important. So how could Paul pronounce against Elmas that he was an enemy of all righteousness. Well, it's, it is the case that Elmas was opposing the gospel, and the gospel is the message of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, coming and fulfilling all righteousness, doing perfectly the will of the Father. That is the gospel by which men are saved. And so Elmas is attempting to move these leaders, these influential people, away from the faith, and and therefore Paul is rightly demonstrating that Elmas is a uh, child of Satan. So this apostolic gospel that Paul then preaches when they get to Antioch in in Sidia, um, it is different than Antioch where the church was uh, formed. It is a different Antioch, although it it is the same uh, word. Um, it's, It's designated as Antioch in Sidia to help you understand it's a different city. So Paul and Barnabas, they, they leave Cyprus and they go to Antioch in Sidia and um, they begin to preach the gospel in the synagogue. So Paul demonstrates further, not only did he execute judgment against Elmas, identifying him with Peter and the rest of the apostles in the uh, early church in, the, in Jerusalem, but he also demonstrates that he teaches within the apostolic tradition. Over and over again, we see Paul defending his ministry in the letters that he writes to the churches that he himself founded. And so 
it is important for us if we're not to fall into that same error, that is to think that Paul's writings are not for today or not apply, they don't apply to us, we have to understand that Paul is an apostle. He Not only does he do signs and wonders, but he also preaches an apostolic gospel. And as we've seen over and over again, it has at least four elements, maybe five, depending on how you divide them up. But the first one is the historical basis for the coming of Christ. Paul demonstrates God's faithfulness in bringing the Hebrews out of the land of of Egypt through the Exodus, and also demonstrates God's faithfulness in destroying the seven armies and then giving them the promised land. He highlights his activity through Samuel the prophet and the king Saul and the king David over and over again, demonstrating God's faithfulness. And then finally, he makes the identification that Jesus is the Christ. That is, Jesus is the only anointed king who can sit on the throne of his father, David, fulfilling all the promises of God, the covenant-making and covenant-keeping one. So Paul demonstrates that Christ comes from the line of David, a necessary requirement to be the Messiah, and Jesus is shown by Paul in his gospel to be this anointed king whom they were waiting for. So, with this history-informed gospel, he then goes on to say what happened to Jesus. Now, we've been talking about the history-informed gospel, or a gospel that is not, um, it doesn't just begin at the book of Matthew. It's important for us as a church and a a group of people as we both live and evangelize, we should not uh, just simply have some sort of gospel that uh, merely paints a picture of God doing uh, significant things in Israel. It is also a gospel that demonstrates Christ as the fulfillment of all of God's promises. This isn't just Jesus arriving at the right time. This is Jesus being the only possible fulfillment for the promises that God, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping one, had made to Abraham. And so when we're going after this history-informed gospel, we've been talking about it week in, week out. We need to not just present it as some sort of cultural argument that it was the right time, but rather that Jesus is the right person the only person to fulfill these promises. So after summarizing God's entire faithfulness with Israel, Paul then moves on to demonstrate what Jesus Christ did in his work on the cross. In Acts 13, 38 through 39, he says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. This is the beginning of the highlighting Uh, of Jesus through his death, eliminating sin, but also freeing you from your previous sins and your continuing enslavement to sin. Earlier, we had seen gospels that are uh, societal in their application, that is, uh, all of Jerusalem needs to turn so that times of refreshing could come. We, we now begin to see this, this theme, although it was there in the past, it's now bringing, uh, coming to the forefront. Jesus has come to set you free from what the law of Moses could not do, that is, to set you free from the law of sin and death. So Paul explains to them that those who come to Christ receive forgiveness of sins through Christ. It is not just Jesus had made something possible and now forgiveness extends from the Father to all humanity. Jesus has become the avenue by which people on the earth can have a relationship with God the Father. 
And so Jesus is not only the mediator of forgiveness, but he's also the deliverer, demonstrating to him to be the only Messiah that they should look for. So through the Exodus, Israel was freed from Egypt, but they were still enslaved to sin. This is the importance of the historically informed gospel. You have to demonstrate that there are foreshadowings over and over again of God's faithfulness, and it has been totally fulfilled in Jesus at the cross. What the law of Moses could not do, Christ has totally done. He has freed them from bondage to sin and death. And after presenting this wonderful freedom that Christ has obtained, Paul provides a warning of judgment. Remember, history-informed gospel, exclusivity of Jesus Christ is the only means by which men might be saved, a call to repentance, and then finally, a warning of judgment. In Acts 13, 38 through 41, um, I lost 38. <laughs> he says, um, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Continuing in 40 through 41, beware therefore, lest what is said in the prophet should come about. He's saying, I don't want this to come true for you. I don't want this phrase, that the prophetic uh, injunction against unbelievers, I don't want this to come true to those who are in Antioch and Sidia. He says, the prophet says, look, you scoffers, be astounded and perished. That, and perish. that is, there are people who will see what God has done through the gospel, not believe, and yet understand. They'll, they'll be amazed, they'll be struck with wonder, and they will perish. For I am doing a work in your day as a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. There were many that day who didn't understand the transition that's about to take place in the focus from uh, cultural Judaism as the center of God, God's people to the Gentiles and the work of the Lord that he would do throughout the nations. So after Paul preaches, people are stirred by the Holy Spirit to righteousness, and this is the authentic fruit of the gospel. How do you know if you know the gospel? How do you know if you've been recreated in the image of Christ? How do you know if you have been washed and sanctified by the blood of the Lamb and have been made into a new creation? This is the proof. Acts 13, 42 through 44, as they went out, that is, as the synagogue dispersed that day, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. They could not get enough of what Paul and Barnabas were explaining. This was water to a dry soul. This was honey to a starving mouth. This was absolutely vital to their life. They begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. They weren't coerced into a, you know, five-day-a-week Bible reading plan that you know, if you don't get it right, you got the weekends to make it up. They begged that the apostles would continue to explain to them what has happened through Christ. And then here's the cultural change. And after, meeting, after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and, devouts con, and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Now, this is not just, I'm inviting somebody over for dinner and we've got some sort of tangential shadow of community. This is, they wanted to be around Paul and Barnabas, so much so that they followed them after the meeting, wherever they went. And they basically were just saying, they were urging them to continue in the grace of God. They're saying, Can, keep going. You'll, you know, now that you're baptized, washed, filled with the Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit will help you understand the scriptures to see Jesus. And, and so there's this 
you can kind of think of Paul and Barnabas almost like, you know, telling them to just chill out. We've got enough time. We'll, we'll tell you. But this is the fruit of coming to know Jesus Christ as not only the Savior of the world, but also the Lord of the world, the God to whom we owe fealty. And then here's the fruit. Here's a change in the culture. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. What had been told by Paul and Barnabas through the synagogue, given to uh, faithful men, men who feared God, they spread rumors. There was discussion in the town. There was some sort of understanding that what had taken place in synagogue that day was phenomenal, and you all have to hear. And so the next Sabbath, almost the entire city comes to gather to hear the word of the Lord. That is a far cry from what we experience today. And would that it would be that for us, that we would have people who want to hear the message of Jesus. But I tell you, it's not going to happen unless we preach a gospel that's in line with with what the the scriptures demand. It's not enough to say Jesus is your personal Lord and Savior. There's no notion of that here. There is a notion of individual forgiveness of sins, but it's mostly said to a group of people who were in synagogue that day. Now, not everyone believed Paul and Barnabas. And so, um, though some Jews turn to Christ, others do not. And these Jews who don't actually stir up uh, strife against the apostles. Now, just as as we've said before, Acts is the book by which the prophecy of Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit has come upon you in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the utmost parts of the earth. But there's another way to see the theme of the book of Acts is as the progressive hardening of the Jews against the gospel and the progressive violence that they unleash and uh, war against the church with. And we've kind of seen it. I'm going to give us a, a one-minute overview. At Pentecost, the, the apostles are merely slandered. They're called drunkards. At Solomon's portico, Peter and John uh, heal a man, and they're arrested. They're brought before the, the Sanhedrin, or, or at least the Pharisees. They're arrested again after that. They're, you know, they're released. They get arrested again. And this time Gamaliel defends them. And it's, uh, you know, it's getting worse and worse each time. It says they wanted to kill them at this point. Then Stephen is falsely accused. Uh, they say he's speaking against the law of Moses and against the, the temple where he wasn't. And he's falsely accused and He's then uh, seized and he's stoned. And then after that stoning, all hell breaks loose. There's a great persecution that comes on the Christians in Jerusalem. They have to flee the city. Now, I, I don't know if any of you are in the prepper community. Uh, that is, you believe in, in preparing for some sort of time where you have to leave. If you can imagine a, a situation in Dayton that would be so violent, you have to leave the city or you'll be killed. And it is a strategic move for you to go to another city so that the gospel wouldn't be stamped out. You're not fear, fearing for your life or, or simply running because you don't want to die, although there might be some element of that. It's really a goal to get the gospel out of Jerusalem and into Judea and Samaria. And so this great persecution comes. I mean, we're talking like if that happened in Dayton, it would be either some sort of martial law or foreign invasion or uh, race riots. or, or I mean, it's something intense happened in Jerusalem. And so the violence is coming quickly. And so Saul then goes from house to house arresting believers. This is, you know, illegal search and seizure here. 
Judaizers accuse Peter of sin in going to the Gentiles, and then Herod begins to execute his sword against James and arrests Peter, but Peter's released. And so this is the progressive hardening of the Jews against the message of the gospel that was coming by the way of the church, and it's about to get intense here. Acts 13, 45 through 47, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. Now notice they weren't filled with righteous jealousy, that is that, that God was being maligned in some way. They were, they were filled with jealousy because people were following the church and they were no longer following them. And they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him, same word that, that happened with Elmas. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us. Remember, when the apostles act in line with the Holy Spirit, it is God acting. For the, for the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you as a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Just like Elmas, the Jews demonstrate that they are children of Satan, and not children of God because they war against righteousness, that is, the coming of Jesus Christ as God in the flesh, fulfilling the will of the Father, completing the law, and, and freeing those who could not be freed by the law of Moses. And these Jews, just like Elmas, were subverting Paul, attempting to turn the city away from following Christ. Just as Elmas would be blind for a time, not able to see, the Jews also will be left in darkness. For this reason, Paul and Barnabas will only show their light to the Gentiles. From this point onward in the book of Acts, the, the focus is now on the gospel going to the Gentiles, and, and they say the Jews have missed their, their Messiah, they've missed their time. And further proof of the hardness of their hearts is this, that after hearing a warning of judgment, that is, we're only going to go to the Gentiles now, they do not beg Paul and Barnabas to turn, uh, a, you know, to come back and, and still preach to them, they then go on and execute violence against them. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city. That's exactly the same thing that Elmas, the evil, wicked magician, was doing. He was attempting to turn the proconsul away from the faith. The Jews incite the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stir up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Again, this is a, an intense persecution that is coming on the apostles and their, the disciples with them. But Paul and Barnabas shook off the dust from their feet against them and went on to Iconium. And the, device, the, the, the uh, disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now, the reason I bring this story up, many people after hearing that God has turned away and it, from, from the Jews in, and, and is now focusing on the Gentiles, make an error and turn it into some sort of anti-Semitical belief in which, you know, the Jews should be persecuted or, or killed or something. That's totally wrong. But another error, even if you don't go that far, is to believe that because this happened to the Jews, we're now the church, God's chosen people, and he's not going to turn away from us if we uh, do the same thing. That is the reason why this account is here. It is to serve as a warning for the church. It is to serve as a warning for you so that you would not turn away from the pure and simple devotion to Jesus Christ and that you wouldn't add on elements of religion to the pure faith of Jesus. That is, you wouldn't create for yourself moral codes by which you attempt to achieve righteous standing before God. You wouldn't ignore his word 
you wouldn't turn against his Holy Spirit and despise prophecies and move against him and, and, and war against his lordship in your life. That is why these warnings about the Jews are here. It's not because we don't like Jewish people. It's not at all because Luke had some anti-Semitic bent. It was because they had warred against God, and this was the final straw. And so, again, as we've seen, uh, when, when Paul is saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, now that it's done, since you have judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. As, we, as we've seen over and over again, when the apostles act, God acts. This is the final moment when the Jews have a chance to hear the word of the Lord, and they've, they've completely missed it. And woe to us if we should ever forget this lesson and fall in the same pattern. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to seek the Lord while he is near. There are times in your life where the word of the Lord comes to you, and you, you simply ignore it, and you will f- face a similar fate to these, to these Jewish people. You'll you'll face a time of hardening which the Holy Spirit won't send apostles and evangelists to you. And he won't continue to preach to you, but he'll preach to those who are his children. And so as we go into our missional season, um, we shouldn't lose our first love. That is, we should not in all of our striving to do missionary activity and everything that we attempt to do in bringing the gospel to others, we should be warned and we should be wary against losing the gospel ourselves. In the midst of all of our activities, which will be many and difficult, in the midst of those activities, if we are not doing it for the sake of love of Jesus, we will burn out, we will turn into people who create moral codes, who establish other forms of righteousness other than believing in Jesus and following his word, and we will be like these Jewish people who ignore the word of the Lord when it comes. So let us not do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your warning. We ask you, God, that we would see beautiful themes like this, that Saul was blind, but then he could see. And those who professed to be blind, they were really blind guides. And you have demonstrated them to be foolish. Lord, we ask you that you would form in us a great ability to preach with clarity the apostolic gospel that Over these next weeks, as we prepare for the Vacation Bible School and the weeks after that, as we prepare to return to Rock Campus Fellowship, I pray that you would choose people from among our congregation that you would specially form, that you would prepare, and that you would uh, embolden to be able to witness, provide a witness to what Jesus has done, not only for their lives, but throughout all of history that it would not be just a mere personal salvation message, but that it would be a cultural transformation as well. Lord, we ask for many, many people, many children, many young adults to come to the knowledge of the truth. We ask you that your Holy Spirit would move on people's hearts and minds as they hear the gospel. And Lord, we ask you that you would confirm your word with signs and wonders following your gospel, and your message of salvation through Jesus. And Lord, in, in all of our doing, we pray that you would help us keep Jesus Christ on the cross, out of the grave, ascended into heaven at the forefront of our gospel, that we would not turn it into some other message of cultural 
uh, restoration of, of racial restoration, primarily of of economic justice, but that it would be Jesus Christ, and from people turning to his lordship, everything else would be set right.